This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 30. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 17. I was looking at uh, possibilities for December by way of an Advent series, which some years we do, some years we don't. It kind of depends on where we are in a series. Of course, with Matthew having just ended... Uh, it seemed like a good idea before starting a new series, a longer series, to just take some time in December to look at some themes related to the birth of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we wanted to uh, wanted to uh, try to find a series uh, or find texts that would, of course, point to Christ uh, and the anticipation of his, his birth, uh, not just in terms of the historical event that we celebrate, but, of course, what that means for us today. Uh, the gospel of Christ for us today. So I was looking at different things and thought about Jeremiah. Of course, many of you have been with us on Sunday nights in our series on Jeremiah. You'll, you may know that uh, we're picking right up where we are in that series because uh, this, uh, this next section of Jeremiah lends itself well, uh, as I was looking at it, to, uh, to thinking about Christmas, thinking about the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah or, as from our point of view, the second coming of the Messiah. So, over the next several weeks, Lord willing, we'll be looking at some passages from Jeremiah, uh, chapter 30 and following, especially in light of the anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah that we celebrate at Christmas, but also his second coming, which we, as they did before his first coming, we look forward to. So let's look this morning at Jeremiah chapter 30. Verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, We have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return. And have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. 
I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. So thus says the Lord, Your hurt is incurable, and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you, for I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for this portion of your word. And Father, we pray that as we think about it now and study it, that your spirit would assist us and teach us. Lord, help us to see here, not just the historical situation of Jeremiah, but our own condition. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to Advent preaching or Christmas preaching, you have to admit Jeremiah is sort of the Rodney Dangerfield of Old Testament books. It doesn't get any respect. Not because it's in the Old Testament. We certainly hear from the Old Testament around Christmas time. Uh, Isaiah frequently gets big play at Christmas. It's Isaiah, of course, in chapter 7 that has that magnificent prophecy of the virgin birth, the virgin conceive a child and bear a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And then also in Isaiah in chapter 9 you have that great promise for to us a son to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders you know and later on he'll be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace these words that just ring with christmas all over them right and other passages such as the one about the branch in Isaiah that we read in uh, chapter 11 just a few minutes ago. Even uh, minor prophets get into the act at Christmas. We think of Micah and his prophecy of you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, from, from you shall come forth one who will be ruler over Israel. And we cherish those passages, and rightly so. Jeremiah at Christmas not so much. That's about to change, because we're going to be looking at Jeremiah uh, here uh, on, in these Christmas uh, studies. Well, as I say, we've been studying Jeremiah on Sunday night, and we've arrived uh, here at chapter 30. Now, chapter 30 through 33 form what some refer to as the book of consolation or the book of comfort in Jeremiah. You know that much of Jeremiah is taken up with the threats and later explanation of God's disciplinary action, particularly against Judah and Jerusalem. Israel, uh, of course, taken into captivity by the Assyrians, dispersed by the Assyrians uh, a couple centuries before. But uh, here, Isaiah is or Jeremiah is talking to Judah, threatening Judah with judgment. And there is grace interspersed in those passages, though sometimes you have to look for it. 
But then in Jeremiah, right in the middle of the book, chapters 30 through 33, you have this section that is one of promise. Promise of healing. Promise of restoration. It's good news. Good news that has everything to do with Christ's arrival that we celebrate at Christmas. Now, this passage before us today, like those in Isaiah, look forward to the arrival of a king. When we look at verse 9, right in the middle of our text, kind of forms the, the apex, the, uh, the hinge, the turning point of this passage. Verse 9 says, But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, a couple of things to notice here. One is that there is no tension here between serving God and serving the king, David. Another thing to notice here is, and that was true, of course, in Israel, but how much more true that is when, when God and the king and the line of David are one and the same. God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing to observe here is that Jeremiah isn't prophesying that somehow David's going to be brought back and his kingship, his reign restored, but rather one who rules in the name of David, one who is in the line of David, which, of course, we saw when uh, the angel came to Mary and made that promise to her of the child that she would conceive and bear, that he would reign on the throne of his, his ancestor, his father, David. And Actually, Jeremiah has already pointed us in this direction back in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Sounds a lot like Isaiah, doesn't it? And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name by which you will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. A fantastic prophecy of King Jesus in the line of David to come. And so Jeremiah says here, the Lord will raise up a king in the line of David, so like David that he calls him David himself, who will bring great blessings to the people of God. What are those blessings? Well, that's what we're going to look at in the rest of our time, in the rest of this passage, uh, the blessings that this king who is promised will bring. First place, first blessing, there are two of them. The first blessing is this that this new king will come to restore our inheritance. This new king will come to restore our inheritance. And the first half of our passage is taken up with that. Chapter, uh, chapter 30, verses 1 through 11. And he's looking, of course, at God's people in his own time. But these words also apply to God's people today. Now, verse 2, the Lord says to Jeremiah to write in a book. There's some thought here that Jeremiah was confined uh, when he wrote these words. Normally, Jeremiah would speak. And uh, we just saw where he was speaking in the temple and arguing with the false prophets and arguing his case and the validity of his prophecies. Well, it's interesting the Lord tells him here to write. So maybe he was confined. Maybe this was an imprisonment when he was not able to speak to the people, but sort of like uh, his... Uh, uh, later descendant in his prophetic calling, uh, the Apostle Paul, when imprisoned, used that opportunity certainly to speak to the prisoners, but also to write to the churches. And so Jeremiah is writing these things out, because even in prison, the Word of God is not uh, bound, as Paul would later say. 
Well, let's look at this restoration of the inheritance of God's people he talks about here. Verse 3, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. Now, Jeremiah typically speaks to Judah, to Jerusalem, to that southern kingdom that remained even after the northern tribes were taken away by the Assyrians. But this promise is for both. And one way to read this is simply to say this is a promise for all of God's people, the whole people of God, Israel and Judah. And he says, I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. We saw how in Jeremiah, even before Jerusalem fell, that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had come in, sort of skimmed off the top of Jerusalem society. They took the king, they took many of the leading citizens, many of the uh, government officials, and many of the people as well into captivity in Babylon. And we saw recently on Sunday night how the Lord had Jeremiah write to those people. You know, the false prophets were saying, two years, you're going to be back in the city. And Jeremiah says, no, 70 years, you're going to be in captivity. So settle down, build houses, plant fields, have children, give in marriage. And that's exactly what they did. They settled down and began to make their home in this foreign country. But even though it would be longer than the false prophets said, they got it right that the Lord eventually would bring them back. Now, the irony was when they started coming back, and you read about it in, in Ezra, Nehemiah, many of them didn't want to go back. You know, Jerusalem was a wreck. It was, a, it was rubble. And many of them had settled down in, Babylonia, in, in Babylon and discovered that they liked it there. And so uh, when they started going back to Jerusalem, there were some who were resistant to the idea, didn't want to return to their homeland. The Lord is promising restoration. I'll bring them back to the land I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Uh, and he says here that they would be uh, delivered. Uh, look at verse 8. Uh, it shall come to pass on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will break his yoke from off your neck. Now remember, the Lord had had Jeremiah put a yoke on his neck, either an oxen yoke or a yoke they would use to carry water as a symbol of the rule and the control of Nebuchadnezzar over uh, Jerusalem and over Judah. And the Lord says here, I will break that yoke. Remember the false prophet, Hananiah, came and, and broke it himself. And so the Lord says, we'll make a yoke of iron. Uh, no, that yoke will not be removed until the Lord himself removes it. And in fact, he will do that. Um, and it was, a, it was a painful time. It was a, it was a heavy yoke, as verses 5 and 6, uh, kind of a funny image Jeremiah uses here. I think it's meant to be somewhat humorous. But a man bear a child, the why the men holding their stomachs like a woman in labor. It reminds me of the old Bill Cosby episode where he had the dream that he was pregnant. But uh, they're in pain. This was a hard time, a difficult time. Uh, and yet he shall be saved out of it. And he says, I will burst your bonds, verse 8. Foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. And yet they would, and then they would serve their true king in verse 9. And so he talks about restoring the inheritance of God's people then. They'd lost their inheritance. They were out of the land. They had been removed by God's discipline. And it was discipline. It was not his ultimate punishment because they would be restored. This was, in effect, a 70-year timeout. And a fulfillment of God's covenant that when you sin against me, if it continues long enough, I will remove you from the land into which I brought you. And that's exactly what happened. And here are the promises that they would be restored. Now, 
How were those promises fulfilled? Well, we said that you read Ezra and Nehemiah that they did go back and they, they rebuilt the wall and they rebuilt the temple and it's only a shadow of its former glory. Is that it? It's a little bit anticlimactic, isn't it? And for good reason. Because that was not climax. That was not ultimately what these prophecies are pointing toward. Uh, but rather, this king who would come back was, of course, the Lord Jesus, the king who would rule on the throne of David and in the line of David. That passage in Luke goes to great lengths to emphasize he's of the line of David. He will rule the throne of David. Because that, not their physical return to the land, but the birth of the king and what he would do, what he accomplished ultimately through his life and death and resurrection, that's the fulfillment. That's the restoration. The land itself was merely symbolic of the presence and blessing and life and salvation of the Lord. So what about us today? Well, the Lord Jesus has come. And we're celebrating something that's after the fact. For them it was future, but for us it was past. And like them, we are and were in the exile of sin, separated from God, cut off from God. Uh, We have the king in the line of David who has come. We have an inheritance that is restored in the sense that as people we were created to know God, to have that relationship with Him, broken by sin, and yet now in Christ, the Davidic King, in the line of David, the King who's come, that relationship, that inheritance has been restored. We enjoy that. If you've believed in Christ, you have that restoration. You have that reconciliation, relationship made right, and you have an inheritance. And yet there is, even today, an extent to which we are a people in exile. You know, as we looked at Jeremiah's words to the exiles in Babylon, there's a real sense, spiritually speaking, that's where we are. We're outside our homeland. We're citizens of heaven, but we're living here in a fallen world, and the words to Jeremiah that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles uh, apply to us. To live, settle down, live here, dwell here, be salt and light, be a blessing, but always remember This is not ultimately our home, and after a set time, the Lord will bring us to our true home. Peter refers to this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, listen listen to this, he says, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What exile? He's talking about your life here knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, did you catch that? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Time of your life here. You see, we are those exiles now, living here. And we're waiting for our inheritance. We're waiting ultimately for that restoration. First Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. The Lord has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, that inheritance still awaits us. The words of Jeremiah apply to us. We are looking forward to that restoration that has been and and will be brought about through our King. And so well might they sing, and well might we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. 
until the Son of God appeared. He appeared once, but for us, we're looking forward to that time when he appears again. We sang that hymn earlier. You had no idea you were singing Jeremiah, did you? Jeremiah at Christmas. Absolutely. Because the king will come and restore our inheritance. But the king will also come. A second blessing that he will bring is that he will come and he will restore our health. Look at verses 12 through 17. Well, thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable. That's bad news, isn't it? You go to the doctor and the doctor says, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. That's effectively what the Lord says here. Your hurt is incurable. In other words, nothing can be done to cure you, to heal you. You see, what he's talking about here is terminal cancer of the soul. Now, in, in, in the case of Judah, he's referring here to their loss, the loss of their homeland, the loss of the temple, and they're, they're being brought into exile by a foreign country. Huge loss. And yet that loss itself is a spiritual loss in the sense that uh, they have been disciplined, they've been cast out because of their disobedience. Yet the Lord had not abandoned them while they were in Babylon, as we know. But even spiritually for them, for us, this is a spiritual condition. Notice the language. Your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There's none to uphold your cause. No medicine for your wound. No healing for you. And the metaphor changes a little bit here to being abandoned. Your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I've dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. You know, it's kind of reminiscent of what Jeremiah said earlier in chapter 8, verse 22. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? In fact, Jeremiah himself refers to himself and his grief over what was going to happen to his nation It says in chapter 15, verse 18, Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? This is our condition. Not being cast out of real estate, but the sickness of the soul, the illness of the soul that, humanly speaking, is incurable. That Nothing can be done for. No one can cure. There's no medicine you can take that will cure the cancer of the soul known as sin. It's a fallen condition. Um, In fact, even it's already dead. It's so far gone that you could say, as the Scriptures do, that it's dead. This, This cancer of the soul, this incurable wound. So is there no hope? Of course not. Because you see, with the Lord, there is always hope. The great physician does the impossible. Look at verse 16. Just as the Lord brought this condition to them because of their disobedience, verse 16, Therefore all who devour you shall be devoured. All your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. All who make a prey on you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal declares the Lord. Now, did you catch that? 
He says, your, your wound is incurable. Your sickness is incurable. Your wound is beyond healing. But I will restore health to you. Your wounds I will heal. You see, the Lord promises to defeat our enemies. The Lord promises to heal our souls. You know, you see that in the ministry of Jesus. You see this being fulfilled physically, but also spiritually. For example, Matthew 9, verse 12, the Lord said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. How did he illustrate that? He illustrated that by healing people that no human could heal. By bringing health and restoration to those who were beyond human health. Those whose wound was incurable, Jesus cured. Those whose sickness was beyond healing, Jesus healed. A a living illustration of what Jeremiah is saying here. So yes, the Lord would bring them back. What's What's so great about being back in your homeland? That's good, but what if you're still sick? What if you're still beyond cure? What if you're still showing all of the symptoms of sin? You see in Jesus' ministry where He makes the lame walk, He makes the blind see, cures the leper, makes him clean. He even raises the dead back to life. Because the Lord says, I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal. But even with Jesus, that was pointing to something far more significant. There was the restoration of the soul, the healing of that incurable sickness of the soul that's known as sin. Matthew 19:26. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Even as Christians, we deal with sin, we deal with guilt, and we need to recognize that the Lord can deal with any sin in your life. Through His death, the Lord has atoned for any guilt in your life. He has made you whole, He has made you clean, He has made you well, and He's continuing to make you well in your daily ex- existence. So as we look at this passage, like Israel, we were made to know God. We were made to be whole. Not exiles, not sick, but at home with the Lord, whole in who we are. But because of sin, and because of your sins, my sins, we have neither. We have neither God nor health. But you see, Christ offers those things to all who will believe in Him and follow Him. Have you done that? Do you know that you have done that? Because you see, Jesus is the triumphant King, the Son of David who defeats his and our enemies. You see, Jesus is the healing king who is able to cure the incurable. And so well might they sing, as well might we sing, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do uh, pray that in our hearts, just as Christ came the first time and has brought healing, has brought the gospel, has brought the kingdom We pray, Lord, for His second coming, when all of that will be ushered in in its fullness and completeness in this world and in our own hearts. And so, Father, we thank You for this passage. Thank You for the promise that it holds of healing, of cure in the Gospel of Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen.